So we are in week 11, sermon series looking at the book of Hebrews, looking specifically at the words of exhortation that this pastor, who a couple thousand years ago wrote a sermon, we call it a letter, but it kind of looks like a sermon, to a group of Jewish Jesus followers living somewhere around the ancient city of Rome, the capital of the ancient Roman Empire. And the purpose of the letter was to give encouragement to that congregation that they might persevere in their faith in the middle of some challenging circumstances. Circumstances like some friends and family members had been imprisoned because of their faith. Circumstances like some of their businesses were being boycotted or shut down because they were Jesus followers. Circumstances like friends or social networks were excluding them because they said, we don't want anything to do with you Jesus-following kinds of people. So the purpose of the whole letter to the Hebrews, the sermon, was to provide encouragement to the congregation, was to help people persevere. And then on top of it, the verses that we looked at last week, and we're going to look at, look at them again this week, uh, chapter 10, verses 35 through 39 talk all the more specifically about how do we persevere? When things are tough, when it feels like it's too hard, too much, too long, I can't do it. When things are tough, how do we persevere? And and we acknowledge something, right? We acknowledge that by talking about perseverance, we are assuming the fact that we're talking about the really hard circumstances of life, right? If my circumstances are It's Friday night, and the kids are all blissfully asleep, and I've got a bowl of ice cream with chocolate sauce. You know what I don't need? I don't need perseverance. I don't need it at all. I am doing just fine. Thank you. I can do this for as long as necessary. But when we're talking about perseverance, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the things that are exactly the opposite. We're talking about the things in life that make us go, I don't think that I can do this much longer. Uh, Last week, um, we looked at the the tiny little quotation that the author of Hebrews uh, uh, included, a a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And we did a, a brief summary of the first 27 chapters of Isaiah, which in case you didn't fully commit it to memory, just in case... We said Isaiah started with 24 chapters of warnings and judgment and and like danger signs about living against the ways of God. And after 24 chapters of warning came two chapters filled with songs of praise. And after the two chapters filled with songs of praise came one chapter of God promising again that he will deliver his people from whatever difficulties or dangers they're facing. And based on that, last week we said, you know, there's a problem with perseverance. The problem with perseverance is the challenging circumstances that build my perseverance are the same circumstances that demand my perseverance. So how do I build it when I need it? And and how do I have it if I haven't gone through the circumstances that build it? And looking at Isaiah, we said, I think God gives us another way to build our perseverance. Namely, that singing to God songs of praise is a key path to developing our perseverance. Because that helps us remember, it's not about whether or not we have the strength, it's about whether or not God has the strength. 
Amen. Yeah, we can, we can say amen to that. That's good. Uh, and so we're going to do the same thing again this week. Uh, I'm going to read again Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. So you'll see the Isaiah, the tiny little Isaiah quote we looked at last week. But then you're going to get another quote, this time from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Everybody's favorite prophet name to say out loud. Habakkuk. Um, just a, a, a little context. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And if you want a quick little trick for remembering which ones are the minor prophets and which ones are the major prophets, the minor prophets wrote short little books. That's how we know they're the minor prophets. There's other ways, but if all you want to do is to be able to write them down on your Old Testament test in seminary, just the ones that are shorter, those are the minor prophets. The ones that wrote big long books... Major prophets. See what we did there? Really good to keep in mind. So we're going to read Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is going to quote Habakkuk. We're going to spend some time asking the question, why did he quote Habakkuk? And if if we familiarize ourselves with the words of the prophet Habakkuk, how could that help us understand how to persevere in our lives today? That's the plan. Sound like a plan? Are we good? Are we good with this plan? Okay. Like three of us are good with this plan. That'll be good. That'll be good enough. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 35. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles if you would like to follow along. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God... You will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So we quote Habakkuk and the two parts of the quote are one, it says, the one who is coming will come. Okay, good. And the second part is my righteous person, the righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back to which I'm like, okay, I would like to be in the righteous person group and not in the shrink back group. So if that's part of how I persevere, How do I do that? What does it mean? What what does it mean to be a righteous person? What does it mean to live faithfully for God in order to persevere so that God's promises, that he will will be faithful to those who have faith? Like, how do I do that? And to answer that question, we'll look now at a few bits of the prophet Habakkuk, a book which probably the first audience would have been fairly familiar with. But I'll, I'll risk saying that maybe, maybe, just maybe, some of us, aren't super familiar with. So you're in luck. You get to become more familiar with this prophet. Um, here's how the book starts, and I think the starting point in the, 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 the first couple of verses in uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 really identify the overarching theme of the whole book. So anytime you quote one part of it, it's, it's, it's pretty clear to me that you need to remember what the starting point was. And here's how Habakkuk starts. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So last week we looked at the perseverance problem. In order to build it, you've got to go through the same circumstances that demand it. This week I want to look at what I'm going to call the patience problem. I'd like to title this sermon, Persevere, Part 2, how long? One of, the, one of the greatest challenges of perseverance is that oftentimes the circumstances we're standing in that demand our perseverance, that are so hard we don't know if we can hang on, we don't know how long they will last, and that is part of what makes perseverance so challenging. Have you ever been in a circumstance that's hard and heavy, and you found yourself asking, how long? How long is this going to last? story that came to my mind. Uh, I was living in China. My wife and I were living in China, and um, she was pregnant with our first son. And a month before the due date, her water breaks. So we do what you do. We get in the taxi, and we head for the hospital in Beijing. It's the middle of the night, and we're on an interstate somewhere just outside Beijing, about to get there, and suddenly, the taxi comes to a stop, and we look out the front window, and we see what in Chinese they call du che, which means traffic jam. I didn't actually take a picture. This is not the picture that I saw. But this feels to me very similar to what I remember feeling at that moment. When I started thinking to myself, things like, am I about to see my first child born in the back of a taxi cab or on the side of an interstate somewhere outside Beijing, China? And I started to say prayers to God that sounded something like Habakkuk chapter 1. How long, O Lord, until you part the seas of this impenetrable ocean of vehicles so that we can make it to the hospital? Uh, the answer in that circumstance, which is an answer we wish is always the answer, was about 45 minutes. That's how long I had to wait until the traffic jam parted and we made it to the hospital. Um, but here's the thing about the question, how long? It's a hard question. It's a question that we can, we can cognitively understand, but until you actually feel it in your bones, um, words really don't do justice to just how hard it is when we genuinely are crying out with these words that women and men of faith for millennia have cried out to God in question. So the Israelites are crying out to God because things are hard in their life. And it turns out for the Israelites, God responded. And here's what God says. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. 
To which I think, yes, this is the kind of answer that I want. When things are hard and I don't know how long it's going to be and I don't know if I can persevere because I don't know how long I got to hold on. It's kind of like those challenges in Survivor where they're like, all you got to do is just hold on to the bar. And then they put them like 15 feet up above the water. Whoever's holding on last wins. And everybody's looking there being like, I wonder how long they're going to hold on. I don't know. And God says, just wait and see, because I'm going to do something amazing. And my assumption, I'm I'm putting myself into the perspective of that first reader, right? The the Israelites, they're in a hard circumstance. We're going to talk in a second about what it is. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, do we have to wait? And God says this back to us. And I think, oh, yes, I'm so excited to see how you solve my problem, take away the pain, uh, 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 destroy my enemies, do all those. I'm, I'm so excited. I will be amazed, God, when you do exactly the thing that I'm expecting you to do and I want you to do to solve my perseverance problem. Next verse. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Okay, you said you were going to do something amazing. And, and I guess this fits the definition of amazing, but this isn't the kind of amazing that I was hoping I would be amazed by when you said you'd do something amazing. God says, okay, don't worry, I'm going to do something amazing. What are you going to do? A foreign nation is going to come in. That nation's called the Babylonians. A foreign nation is going to come in, and they're going to conquer you. That's what I'm going to do. I I don't feel better about that. (laughs) See, when we ask the question how long, it, it also raises all sorts of other questions that sort of swirl in, swim in the same waters as the how long question. When we ask the question, how long, sometimes we also ask the question, again? Like, I already went through this once. I got to go through it again? Or how many times do I have to trust you, God, before you'll finally just take away the problems instead of asking me, how bad is it going to get? Or maybe my personal favorite, which is just, really? And I think the question, how long, and all of its variations, are also actually just different forms of the question that's sitting under the surface, kind of right underneath, right behind the question, which is, can I really trust you, God? And if you read through the rest of the book of Habakkuk, which you could do because it's one of the minor prophets, so it's short. It's only three chapters. What you'll find out is that what they spend t- what Habakkuk spends time talking about is, in effect, God responding to Israel, saying, hey, just so you guys remember, the difficult circumstances you're in right now, Israel has been here before. Next slide. There we go. Israel has been here before. The, the difficulty you're first facing, even though it feels impossibly difficult to you, this isn't the first time. That mountain that you have to climb that feels like there's no way you're going to get over it, even though it feels like there's no way you could ever get over it, people have gotten over it before as well. And 
the last chapter of Habakkuk actually recites story after story after story from the history of the people of Israel and story after story after story about how God has proven faithful to Israel many times, many places, and in many ways. And that story is super important because it's so easy for us to assume when we're seeing a hard circumstance to assume that our circumstance is uniquely more difficult than any difficult circumstance anybody has ever faced before. But let me just remind you about a few highlights from how God has proven himself faithful to Israel many, many times. It all started with a promise. God said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, you're the guy, and I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation. And Abraham thought, oh, that's exciting. I'm going to be a great nation. Except I don't have any kids, and I can't have any kids. And a lot of years go by, and I still don't have any kids. But finally, Abraham has a kid. And his kid has a kid. So you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, Jacob has 12 kids. And if you're trying to build an entire nation, 12 kids is the right number. We're talking multiplication now, people. But unfortunately, his favorite kid, Joseph, which, as an aside, just because Joseph was the favorite kid doesn't mean we're supposed to have a favorite kid. That's not the point. That's not the point of the story, just to clarify. Joseph, Jacob's favorite kid, then gets sold into slavery. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. things were going well. We were moving in the right direction. And then I lose my favorite son. But that's all right. That's all right. Because even though Joseph is enslaved, after a little while, Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph is a special guy. And pretty soon, he goes from sitting in the dungeon to sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh and running operations for the whole nation. So Joseph convinces Pharaoh to bring his whole family back. And pretty soon, the nation of Israel now is living in the nation of Egypt, and they are successful and happy, and things are going well. Until Joseph dies, and Pharaoh dies. And a new Pharaoh comes in and is like, you know what I could do with this nation, the Israelites? You know what I could do with them? I could make them my slaves. That is a good idea. And so now, suddenly, things were going well, and now not just one son is enslaved in Egypt, but the entire nation gets enslaved in Egypt. So they cry out again, God. And God hears their cry and says, I will free you. And God sends his man, Moses. There he is. (laughs) And through Moses, God frees not just one man, Joseph, but God frees the entire nation from slavery. It's like they've been in this whole circumstance before, but now they're experiencing it again. God is faithful to his promise. And he brings them out, and they get like a day out, and they hit the Red Sea, and they're like, ah, just kidding, we're going to turn back and go to Egypt. But God's faithful again. And they cross the Red Sea, and they're like, oh, we're hungry, at least we had food to eat in Egypt, but God is faithful again. And they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses is talking to God, and they're literally standing there watching as God's presence descends on the mountain, and they're like, that's the God that saved us from slavery, wow. But Moses is up there for 40 days, and they're like, ah, I can't wait that long. Instead, I'm just going to build myself a golden calf and worship that thing instead. Well, they they repent, and God forgives them, and they go through that cycle a handful of times until finally they come to the edge of the promised land. But they doubt God again, and they say, God, how will we ever conquer all these mighty nations in there? There's no way. 
So they have to wait 40 years walking around in the wilderness. The number 40 seems to be a theme in this story over and over again. Until finally the next generation of people make it into the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. I thought I was just putting a picture of milk and honey up there. I don't know. um, I don't know what I googled when I found that picture. It's a nice picture. Is it Palestine? It must be. Anyway, I digress. And Israel finally enters the promised land. The the promise made to Abraham, which turned into a great nation who then been enslaved, but then finally they make it their own people, their own nation, their own land. They build a government. They get a king. They build a temple to God. Things are finally going well. And right then is when the Babylonians come and conquer them. I mean, you look at the story of Israel and you're just like, up and down and up and down and up and down. Like, how could it be that so many good things and so many terrible things happen to this people? And so I imagine, what, what would it have been like for the Israelites living during the time of Habakkuk, experiencing what it is to have seen God be faithful to his promises and then to have something terrible happen and to doubt whether or not God will be faithful to his promises. Or I think about the congregation that the author of Hebrews writes to, who, this, this might be the very beginning of the second generation of Jesus followers, who, who knew people who during their lifetime walked with Jesus, saw, heard him teach, saw his miracles, and now they're on their own living as faithful Jesus or Jewish faithful Jesus followers, and yet they've come on hard times. What would it be like to live in the ancient Roman Empire when the emperor is starting to make it increasingly difficult and dangerous, even deadly, to proclaim that you're a Jesus follower? I can only imagine that when they hear a quotation of Habakkuk, this prophet who asked the question, how long I can only imagine all sorts of other thoughts going through their heads and emotions going through their hearts. When you ask the question, how long, what else is going through your mind? What are the ways that you uniquely wonder whether or not God can be trusted? As I think about that circumstance and as I kind of read through Habakkuk and and this chunk of Hebrews again, um, I was asking the question, so what's what's this pastor, what's this author um, who wrote the letter to Hebrews, what, what are they trying to say to give us what we need, to give us the strength and encouragement to be able to persevere? And there's three observations that that kind of came to my mind. If Habakkuk, like all of the prophets in some way, shape, or form, if Habakkuk reminded Israel of all the ways that God has been faithful through all the ups and downs of life, if if the reminder is that no matter what difficult circumstance you're going through, somebody's been through it before, then that means one of the first things that they're trying to remind us is that no matter what we're facing, you're not alone. Isn't it true that often when life gets the hardest, our brains start telling us, you're the only one. Nobody else would understand. This is more or different or harder than anybody's ever felt before. And I think the reminder from so many parts of Scripture is that God's people have been through anything that you're going through. You're not alone. And when we remember that we're not alone, 
that other people have been through what we've been through, we also get a reminder that God is faithful. That's a really hard one because when all I see is the painful, uh, uh, dangerous, just, just crushing weight of the circumstances in front of me, when that's all I see, it's, it's natural and it's easy to wonder whether or not God is faithful. But when I'm reminded that millions of men and women of faith for millennia have been through hard circumstances like me, have come out on the other side and have said, you know what, God proved himself faithful again. When I can see that, then I can be reminded that in the same way, God is and will be faithful to me as well. And the last thing, which is the thing I kind of want to land the plane on, uh, is that what we see is not all there is. One of, the, one of the realities of painful circumstances in life is they tend to narrow our vision. They tend to become the only thing that we think about, the only thing that we feel about. They, they, become, they become the thing we think about when we go to bed at night, we think about when we wake up in the morning, and pretty soon the only thing we're seeing when we look out at the world around us is this seemingly impossible thing in front of us. And when that's all we see, of course it's hard to remember or be encouraged by the truth that God is with us. But what we do, what challenging circumstances do, is they make it so that we let our circumstances determine what we think about God instead of letting God determine what we think about our circumstances. And that really challenging difference right there is, I think, what makes the difference between, as the author of Hebrews said, um, belonging to those who shrink back and are destroyed or to those who have faith and are saved. As I was reading through this all and, and, and thinking about just the way that the Old Testament prophets time and time and time again tell the stories of God's faithfulness to God's people through every imaginable difficulty, and how those stories are there to be a reminder to us of God's faithfulness, which is a means of strength. The, the phrase that came to my mind was that the, authors is the author is trying to help us, God's faithful people today, seek a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is when suddenly you see everything from a completely different perspective. Things that seemed like they just weren't even there appear and you see them everywhere. Things that seemed impossible suddenly seem possible. Things that seemed inconceivable suddenly seem like, oh, maybe that is what's actually going on. Are you in a how long circumstance in your life right now? I've had a number of conversations over the past week and even this morning with people who are in in painful life situations that feel overwhelming? Do you know somebody? Are you walking with? Are you, are, are you sharing the journey with somebody who's in one of these how long kind of circumstances? If so, I want to ask us, um, what are we going to do to become people of perseverance? What are we going to do to have a paradigm shift? And, and here's, the main, here's the main idea I want to camp out on. Um, if it's true that sometimes we let our circumstances 
define our understanding of God as though what we see is the biggest reality and God is, is whatever the result is, then to have a paradigm shift, we need to, to try and seek to see God as God. Seek to see God not so much as what we think God is or how good we understand God to be or just what we've experienced of God, but see God as God. I've got three short illustrations to, to maybe try to do this thing that I don't know, I don't know if we can do it. I don't, I don't know if we can do it, but I, I can hope and I, and, and I can pray that maybe it'll happen. Um, what does it mean to see God as God? What does it mean to see my circumstances maybe just a little more through the eyes of God's perspective instead of mine? Uh, first, a, a story about a battleship. I, I, I looked and looked to see if I could find like the true source of the story and it's been told a million times, a million places, but um, some people doubt it ever happened. But it's a great story either way. So a battleship is out for maneuvers in the ocean. And um, as they're out, a thick fog descends. And not long after the thick fog descends, so thick nobody could see, night falls. So what was horrible visibility has now gone to absolute zero visibility. And so the captain of the battleship decides to stay on the bridge uh, in this dangerous circumstance. And sure enough, into the evening, um, one of the watchmen sends a message. Captain, I see a light off the starboard bow. Captain asks, is the light moving to our stern or is it staying steady? Because if it's staying steady, we know we're on a collision course. The watchman says, oh, it's, it's staying steady. Captain says, okay, send a radio signal. Tell the other ship, change your course 20 degrees. Radio signal comes back. Uh, we recommend you change your course 20 degrees. Well, the captain doesn't like this very much. He's a captain of a battleship, after all. So he radios back. This is a captain speaking. I command you to change your course 20 degrees. Radio signal comes back. I am a seaman second class. I recommend you change your course 20 degrees. Well... He's had enough. He realized, like, I am the captain of a battleship. You will change course right now, 20 degrees. Radio comes back. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> the problem with trying to understand our circumstances only through our perspective is that it's like a battleship trying to yell at the lighthouse, tell it to move. God is the one who is the firm, rock, unmovable, trustworthy, trying, sending out that light, trying to keep us safe. I was listening to an um, interview with a pretty well-known scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he gave what was an incredible illustration. He said, okay, um, think about the tallest mountain on earth, Mount Everest, um, and imagine not only that you're standing at the base of Mount Everest and looking up at the, at the highest point on earth, but now imagine that somehow the Mariana Trench, five miles deep into the ocean, imagine you were, you were standing at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the lowest point on the crust of the earth, and you were looking up at the top of Mount Everest. Okay, can you picture that? You actually wouldn't even be able to see the top of Mount Everest. And sometimes when we are in perseverance circumstances, 
That's what life can feel like, right? I'm standing five miles deep on the bottom of the ocean, looking however many miles up to the top of Mount Everest. It feels impossibly large. And what Tyson said is, but what we really have there is a challenge of perspective because we have to remember the earth is 8,000 miles in circumference. So if we could take the earth and if we could shrink it down to the size of a pool ball, And then if we thought about the highest heights of all the mountains and the lowest depths of all the seas, but if it was the size of a pool ball, if we were to run our finger across the surface of it, it would be smoother than any pool ball we've ever felt in our entire lives. Because perspective changes what we see. Or maybe the greatest version of that, um, the Voyager probe uh, shuttle went out, 45 plus years ago, and right as it was about to leave our solar system, the engineers turned the cameras, and they, they took this picture. You can see um, a little thin beam of light going across it, and in the middle of the beam of light is a little pale blue dot. You know what that pale blue dot is? That's the planet Earth. Every war that's ever been fought Every relationship that's ever been broken apart, every suffering or pain or heartache that's ever been experienced, which to us feel like an impossibly high mountain that could never be climbed, was made by a God who created not just that dot, but everything around it. And this is just one picture from one edge of one of the solar systems that God created. I want to end with a prayer written by the Apostle Paul, sent to the church in Ephesus, which went through some similarly painful circumstances, and I want to make this prayer a prayer for us today. I'd love to have the worship team come back up. And would you pray with me? God, we confess that the circumstances of our life can feel impossibly large sometimes. But we ask that you would give us a paradigm shift. Help us to see, not just through our eyes, but to see as you see God. And it's for that reason, God, that we kneel before you, our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen each and every one of us with power through your Holy Spirit in every one of our most inner beings. God, may may Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray, God, that each and every one of us, being rooted and established in your love, may have power. Give us power, God. Give us power along with all of your people. The power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses and goes so far beyond anything we could ever imagine or understand. And I pray that all of us might be filled 
to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, our God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or can even imagine, and according to his power that is at work inside of us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and for every generation, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.